All right. All right, Salt Company, go ahead and take a seat. Go ahead and take a seat. Wow. Hey, welcome. Welcome to Salt Company. It's a glorious Thursday to be here. Happy that you're here. Hey, if you don't know me, my name's Austin. What's up, guys? <laughs> uh, delightful. Hey, I don't know about you guys. I, I'm eager to hear what you all are sharing with each other about what you do with 80-degree weather. But for me, it brought to mind summers camping. Anybody go camping growing up? Yeah. Delightful experience. My family would do glamping. We would do more regular camping as well. But something I got into as I was like later in high school and into college was backpacking. I like to actually mount the whole backpack, get all the gear in there, and spend a whole week like on a trail, cooking myself dinner from the food that's in my pack, gets lighter as we go. I love that kind of stuff. And it made me think a little bit about, have you ever been on a trail and thought about like the navigation of a trail? And uh, I think about this all the time. Those that were like the trailblazers, the ones that were paving the trail for you, they were the first ones to actually go on that trail. They didn't even have anybody telling them where to go. But over time, they would have to instruct people how to move on that trail, okay? So they start coming up with ways to convey directions. And they start using landmarks, right? They start using landmarks. So, hey, turn right. Make sure you don't go too far. Make sure you, if you see the big boulder, you've gone too far. But if you see the little boulder on your right, then, then take the exit, Uh landmarks, right? Landmarks. Uh, I started to think about how they would navigate through normal parts of the country, tr country too, like the Minnesota. How would they navigate through Minnesota? Would they have different landmarks as they were paving through? How the heck would people go through Iowa? Have you ever thought about how people gave direction? Just go until you're all the way through. Go until you turn at the corn. I don't know. Landmarks in Iowa, virtually impossible. So then I started thinking about landmarks. This was literally my train of thought. Started thinking about landmarks, started thinking about road trips that I would take as a family. And the Miller family had this famous landmark. Okay, we would go to my grandparents' house. It was about an hour and a half away. And it was a big deal when we were growing up that in the car, when we reached halfway, it was a big celebration because I don't know if you've been in a car with three siblings 90 minutes is an eternity. So when you made it halfway, we were stoked. This is how we celebrated being halfway. We would pass through a town called Delano or a city called Delano. And I don't know if you guys have been there before, but there's this gas station that has this massive rooster just out in the front. And so we would drive past Delano. It was halfway, and we nicknamed him Rupert. So if anybody goes through Delano and sees that giant rooster, you can, you can do like the Miller family would do and just wave and say, what's up, Rupert? Hey. A little fun fact about my family. Yeah, landmarks. An archaic form of navigation, but really helpful. I knew I was halfway to my grandparents' house when I saw Rupert. And if you've been with us this past little while, we've been in Isaiah. Okay, the book of Isaiah is a prophecy. It's a book of prophecy. It's laying out what's about to happen. And so, actually, like, the book of Isaiah is kind of like a land, he's, 
It's like a landmark for us. He's saying, hey, you're going to know that this is the Messiah. You're going to know that this is the Savior of the world when you see him living a life like this. Just like I can be certain that I'm halfway to my grandparents' house when I see the rooster, we can look at this prophecy of the book of Isaiah and know that when we see what happens in this book, that we've seen the Messiah. So we're looking at chapter 53 tonight, Isaiah chapter 53. I know this is some of you guys' favorite chapter in the book of Isaiah, so I'm excited to look at it with you guys. If you've got a Bible, I would welcome you to open it up, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm pumped. I'm pumped because truthfully what Isaiah is saying in this whole thing is, hey, I want you to see the way that this man is going to live. Have your eyes peeled for the coming Messiah. Have your eyes peeled for the one who will make all things new. Okay, let's go right into the text, guys. I want to I wanna start in verse 3 when you're there. Here's what it says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed You're going to know that it is the Messiah. You're going to know that it is the Savior of the world when you see a man live like that. Can I tell you something crazy? A little spoiler. That man is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. He lived 2,000 years ago, and he lived a life like that. One of lowliness. One of carrying sorrows. He would go on to take upon the punishment of the world, of the sin, and he would die unexpected, yet expected, right? Because actually, the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came. Can you think about that for a second? This book was written 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And it laid out his life to a T. This was not an accident. This was not an accident. God knew that it would take place, so he made sure that it was wrote down before it would happen. And he would make sure that we would be able to have our eyes peeled for Jesus. So honestly, guys, tonight, as we unpack this text, I just want you to look for Jesus in this text. I want you to see him in it. His life matches up perfectly with the prophecy in Isaiah, and I, I'll help color that in as we go, but honestly, I want you to also just like focus in on the places that Jesus went. That's what we're going to unpack tonight. Five different places that Jesus went through his life because every single detail was on purpose. It confirms the prophecy that was written long ago and sends into the future hope and comfort. 
So plain and simple, it matters to us tonight, though written long ago, it matters to us tonight because it has something to say about us right now. So tonight, we're going to unpack five places that Jesus went for us. All right, number one, let's look back at verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Jesus went to the lonely place. He went to the lonely place. To color this in, I actually want to take you to a story in the last moments of Jesus' life. This is coming from Matthew chapter 26, if you're curious about it, but you don't need to flip there. Okay, Jesus and his buddies, they were enjoying a nice meal together. Jesus knew that this would be their last meal together, but they didn't quite put that together quite yet. And afterwards, Jesus is outside, and he's filling his buddies in about what's about to happen. He pulls them all together, and he says, hey, just want to let you guys know that in a little while, there's going to be some guys that come, accuse me, seize me, Take me into custody, bring me before the governor, and you, my friends, are going to turn your back on me. And his friends are like, no way. Jesus, you're the OG, we're the OGs, man, we're not going to turn from you. We're the real ones, and this one really confident one, the spokesman of the crowd, Peter, hey, even if they all leave you, Jesus, I'm going to stay. Even if I have to die, I'm not going to leave you, Jesus. And not soon after that, just as Jesus had predicted, people would come. They would accuse him. They would take him away. And this is what it says in Matthew 26. That all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. Just like that, Jesus Alone, surrounded by only the people that hated him, that wanted to bring him down. Have you ever thought about just what that would feel like? You ever imagined what it might feel like for the God who created all things, who even created community, to be totally left alone? His friends to leave him exactly when he needed them most. Maybe it doesn't actually take that much for you to think about that. Because that's your story. It feels like friends have just left you. Left to your own devices. Only surrounded by people that maybe care about the surface but don't actually want to get to know you. In the words of Isaiah, 700 years before it happened, Jesus was despised, rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Friend, I just want to let you know that Jesus knows what it's like to be left alone. Jesus knows what it's like to have his friends let him down. So to the ones that feel like they are the outcast, to the ones that feel like they're alone in a crowded room, Isaiah 53 shows us that God would dare to become an outcast. 
so that he would bring the outcasts to himself. Isaiah 53 wants you to know that God is near to you. The God who would put on flesh and bone only to be let down by his friends is the same God who invites you into relationship and declares to you that he will never leave you. We're so like Peter, aren't we? We're so like Peter saying, I'm never going to leave you. And then moments later we flee. God is not like that. He will never leave your side. And that's why he went to the lonely place. To make sure that you never have to. So the next time you head back to your apartment feeling like you're just alone in this, that nobody's there, I just want you to remember that God has never left. He's right there. Jesus went to the lonely place so that you would never have to. Place number two. Let's look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The second place that Jesus went for you is the place of deep sadness, of grief. All right, I just want to speak to the person in the room tonight that has been taken advantage of. I know that there are people in this room that are walking in feeling broken and in pieces, scarred by things in the past, coming in feeling like, the thing that defines you isn't the thing that you've accomplished. It isn't necessarily a character trait, something you've done or something you've achieved, but it's something that has happened to you. Somebody used their position over you as a display of power and left you beat up, bruised, broken. First thing I just want to say is that I'm sorry. It's not supposed to be like that. Power not supposed to be used that way. It's not right, and it's not, it's not your fault. You might be sitting there and just honestly wondering, like, why? Maybe you're coming to Salt Company trying to find answers. Wondering why did it happen to me? Why then? Why buy them? And tonight, honestly, I don't have a great answer for you. And I don't know that Isaiah 53 has a great answer for you, but it has something much, much better. Isaiah 53 doesn't give advice or consoling wisdom in the form of an answer. It gives you a person to walk with. It doesn't necessarily put all the pieces back together, but it gives you a person to walk with through the hurt, one who knows what it's like to be taken advantage of. And as far as I can tell, in like a time of grief and a time of pain, the only thing better than a loving answer to a question is a hug from a friend who just wants to be with you. It's like you're trying to climb up 
a mountain with a heavy load on your back, a burden on your back that gets heavier and heavier as you go. Sometimes the thing that helps isn't somebody telling you how to tighten the straps up and just keep chugging. The thing that helps is a friend that comes alongside you to encourage, to comfort, and to help you just put one foot in front of the other. That's what Jesus is offering you tonight. He wants to walk with you. He wants to walk with you in the hurt. That's why it says that Jesus bore, took on himself sorrow as if it was his own. This is how near Jesus is to you right now. He knows exactly how hard it has been because he himself was taken advantage of. He was mocked and beaten. People spat in his face and tormented him, whipped him, bruised him, He knows. He knows what it's like, and he wants to walk with you. Guys, comfort, true comfort comes from the creator. If you're anything like me, when there's hard stuff going on, really hard stuff going on, I tend to want to look at created things to give me comfort, right? So I'll look at my job, We look at my grades, my hobbies. Maybe for you it's performance in a certain activity, body image, tangible success somewhere. That thing is going to give me comfort, created things. But friend, I just want to remind you that comfort comes from the creator. God is the source of all comfort. And he walked through grief and sorrow to ensure that you would always be comforted by him. Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 11, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. What a sweet invitation. He's the person to walk with. Jesus takes your grief so that you would have comfort and a person to walk with. Okay, the third place. The third place that Jesus went. Silence. Look with me in Isaiah 53 at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Once again, I want to take you to the later moments of Jesus' life. Now this is Matthew 27. After being accused and mocked and spat at, they took him in front of the governor, Pilate. I want you to picture with me this scene. Basically, they're trying to get him to just testify All the chief priests, the scribes, these like religious elite were trying to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of doing, of saying something that he wasn't. And all that they were trying to do in this scene, there's this big crowd around Jesus accusing him. Testify. Tell us who you are. And the governor asks him, trying to get him to plead his case. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, you have said so. 
his one simple comment. But then the chief priests and the scribes, they begin yelling at him again, accusing him. Admit who you are. Confess. The governor asked Jesus, do you hear all these accusations that they're yelling at you? Why won't you just admit? Why won't you defend yourself? Why won't you tell us that you are free to save yourself? Why won't you admit that you are God? Why won't you just mount up your throne right now? But Jesus stood silent. Amidst the accusations, the crowds would begin to get unruly and demand that he would be crucified. A riot would begin to break out because they were so passionate that Jesus would be hung on a cross. And the lonely man, the one whose friends had left, the one who had been humiliated and spat on, stood silent. In the words of Isaiah, 700 years before this would happen, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Imagine being in that moment. Jesus could have mounted a throne. He could have taken command. He could have summoned armies of angels to reveal who he was. But he didn't. He remained silent. He would humbly receive the penalty that awaited the accusations. He would be put to death on a cross which would purchase for you right standing with God. Now you, because of Jesus' silence, receive relationship with God and can speak to him whenever you want. Do you see that Jesus was silent in the face of death so that you could cry out to him for life? His silence before the accusers allows you to present your whole self before God and receive grace. Receive a listening ear, the zipped mouth of Jesus, earned for you the open ear of God. So my encouragement for you, that Jesus went to the place of silence so that you wouldn't have to remain silent to God. You can talk to him. Imagine what this would be like if you like presented what you actually thought to God, wouldn't that be awesome? You can be honest with him. You can cry out to him. You can make your fears, your anxieties, your late night cravings, your dreams known to God. He listens to you when you speak. Because of what Jesus has done, you can present it unpolished. You can present it to him in bed at night, in the shower, after you've sinned. You can talk to him whenever you want. You can do that and be confident that you won't receive a frustrated God on the other end. He will listen and he will respond with grace. This is undeserved love. Jesus didn't defend himself because he had something else on his mind. Someone else on his mind. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement 
the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The fourth place that Jesus would go is the place of wrath. I want you guys to see something wild in this text. This is cool. Oh my goodness. It's, it's a funnel, really. A funnel in the text. Did you see how it began with all people? All have turned away. Our transgressions, our iniquities brought us peace. It's collective. It's corporate. It's many. We all, like sheep, sheep have gone astray. We lost sight of the shepherd. We darted in different directions. This is sin, guys. When we lose sight of the creator God and all dart off in our own direction. That's what we're all guilty of. Everybody in every corner of the world has gone off in their own direction and has lost sight of the shepherd. But look at the funnel down. The Lord has laid on him. One person. All the sheep messed up. But the Lord has laid on him. One person. The iniquity of us all. It's a massive funnel. The Messiah would come to take upon himself the sin of all the sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All sin laid on one man. All wrongs attributed to one man. Like rain that falls on a mountain range, and the beads fall on the leaves of the trees, make their way to the ground, and all of a sudden they start coming together in little streams. And then the little streams grow larger as they collect more water. They grow into rivers, and then they pour into one lake at the bottom. So the lake of fury against sin was laid on one man, Jesus. You ever go to the zoo and, and put a penny in that little, like, spiral funnel thing? It's like we all had a penny and tossed it in that little funnel. And it goes round and round. But where does it end up? It all spirals down into one bucket at the bottom. So the bucket of the penalty against sin was put on one man. Like clouds in a storm that come from all directions. And they swarm together until they release one nasty tornado and hits one single spot on the ground. So the winds of anger against sin were thrown onto one man, Jesus. Like debts of thousands and thousands of college students was paid by one man. He took upon all the debt and, was, and paid it off without any assistance from anybody. So the debt of all sin was paid by one man, Jesus. Do you guys see the funnel here? He was crushed so that you would experience peace with God. He went through hell in your place 
and he went there so that you wouldn't have to. So if you are in Christ, there is no wrath left for you. Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Your sin has no power over you because Jesus took it. He paid for it. You don't have to. The banner over your life is no longer under the wrath of God. It is under the peace of God. Sins past, sins present, sins future, completely paid for by Jesus' work on the cross. If you've given your life to Jesus, you've completely traded places with him. You no longer receive the penalty for sin. You receive the righteous reward of Christ. You live under peace of God. Oh my goodness, this changes everything because when you realize this, that the the penalty has actually been paid for, then the next time that you look at porn, you know, peace with God. The next time you flip at the roommate for not doing the dishes, peace with God. When you look at someone with selfishness or pride, peace with God. When you haven't read your Bible in weeks, peace with God. You didn't earn peace with God, so you can't unearn it. That's freedom, guys, and it's a gift. Jesus did not go through hell for you to feel like you need to throw a pity party after you sin again. No, he went through it so that the penalty would be fully carried out on him. That's the whole point. All of your sin has been dealt with. There's no no wrath left for those who are in Christ. All you have is peace now. Jesus went to a place of wrath so that you would stand in a place of peace. That's good news. Who would dare to do this? That's my question. Who would do this? What kind of God would have the audacity to take upon himself the wrath of undeserving sinners? Guys, that doesn't make sense. That is crazy. Who would do this? Because there's one person. There's one person who would do this. One person who dared to turn the world upside down. One person who lowered himself below all people. Therefore, Jesus went to the fifth place. Glory. He is worthy to be praised because of what he has done. Jesus Christ did the unthinkable. Written about 700 years before it would happen, God, the one who created all things, put on flesh and bone, walked among his people, humbled himself to the point of a criminal's death, channeled the full attention of the wrath of God upon himself, even though he was the only one who didn't deserve it. And then he rose from the dead and appeared to all his friends to show that he actually was God all along. Who else has done this? Nobody. 
I love how the book of Philippians speaks of this. You don't have to turn there, but let me just show you. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Salt Company, there is no greater name than Jesus Christ because he did the unthinkable. He is the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah 53. He is the spotless lamb who would be slain for the many. He is the risen king who would bring victory over sin and death. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is near to you, closer than the air you breathe. That's why he did what he did. Man, he wants to be close to you. That's why he suffered. So that you would know that he knows what it's like. Jesus rose from the grave and he's in the heavenly places now. But guys, he is being the exact same person that he has always been. God has not changed. God has always been and always will be the one who loves sinners. He had the audacity to lower himself and serve you simply because that's who he is. He is a serving God. And because of this, he is most worthy to be praised. God glorifies himself through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. These are the five places that Jesus went for you. Loneliness. Grief. Silence. Wrath. And to glory. He did this so that you would know he is not far off, but he came near to you. Guys, this is just what I want to close with, a simple gospel. I want this to be ringing in your ear. The beauty of the simple gospel, the good news that though you were once far from God, God came for you. He suffered and he bled and he died for you, taking upon himself the penalty of sin. He rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you would believe, then you would receive all that he has to offer. And Isaiah 53 lays it all out, what is on the plate for you to take. In Christ, the lonely receive a friend. In Christ, the abused receive a comforter. In Christ, the helpless receive salvation. In Christ, the sinner receives mercy. In Christ, the many receive an eternity in glory. What is it that you need tonight? Guys, you can find it in the person of Jesus. What do you need? Man, let's pray and ask him for what it is. God, you know what we need. You've always known. That's why you had it in store before the foundation of the world to send your son to suffer and to die for the sins of the world. That's how you were able to put it in writing 700 years before it even happened, that this was always what you had planned. And it's glorious, it's beautiful, and unbelievable 
plan, God, I pray for comfort tonight. Would the hurting person in the room find comfort in your son? Would the lonely person in the room find a friend in Jesus? Would the lost in the room find mercy and grace? God, the work has been finished. You've purchased peace for us. Thank you. Thank you for Isaiah 53. Thank you for suffering. You didn't have to, but you chose to. Thank you for being near to us. I pray that you would just stir up worship in this place. Would we know that you are near? Be praised, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.